0: Today on Pro Wrestling History Nerds, I interview Chris Borne, the director of Lady Wrestler, the amazing untold true story of African-American women in the ring. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swims. Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Pro Wrestling History Nerds. I'm Nick Gossard. I'm a wrestling promoter here in Denver, Colorado. But more important for the moment and for the show... I'm a history nerd. I'm a professional wrestling history nerd. And I have an amazing special guest with us today. Say hello to Chris Bourdain.
1: Hey, Nick. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Chris Bourdain has a documentary that just came out called Lady Wrestler. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah. So Lady Wrestler, the subtitle is The Amazing Untold Story of African-American Women in the Ring. And the documentary tells the story of black women who were world famous professional wrestlers back in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. And this, you know, amazing lost chapter of history all started in my hometown of Columbus, Ohio, all due to a man, a white man named Billy Wolf, you know, one of the most legendary and should I say notorious wrestling promoters who sort of took women's Wrestling, sort of, and you know, out of it being a novelty, and turn it into a worldwide enterprise with his wife Mildred Burke, who was the first uh, women's world wrestling champion.
0: And have you? Did you grow up a wrestling fan? Like, what brought you to this material? Like, what made it catch your eye?
1: Yeah, so I was a wrestling fan when I was like middle school age. So I used to watch uh, the W, the uh, WWF. They're like Rowdy, Roddy Piper, who I interviewed for the documentary, and uh, Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan uh, when the WWF WF matches were on WTBS. I used to watch them and I actually used to just like pretend I was Roddy Piper and would like throw myself around on the <laughs> on the floor and pretend I was I was wrestling. And then to be quite honest, I sort of kind of forgot about wrestling for many, many years. Um, I have an English degree from Ohio State and most of my career has been in print journalism, but I'd always had an interest in filmmaking. And um, so when I was working at a newspaper that was uh, affiliated with the Columbus Dispatch, the local daily newspaper, I was Would call a man named Terry Anderson, another African American man um, who was working in public relations at at a local arts council. And every time I called Terry, he'd say, There's this really interesting lady you should interview. And that turned out to be Ethel Johnson, one of the first black women that Billy Wolf recruited into his uh, women's wrestling enterprise. I wrote a story about Ethel. um, And by the way, so I, I shouldn't skip over the details. So when I sat down with Ethel, this was the end of December. 2005, so around the holidays of uh, 2005. She just had these amazing stories of going all over the world, wrestling in Japan, all the different parts of Canada, Montreal, and uh, she even had a, a ring name in Latin America, Rita Valdez, so she went to Cuba before the embargo, you know, all over Mexico, and then um, I just thought, I thought her stories were amazing, regardless of the wrestling aspect, the, the fact that a black woman was doing these things back in that time, and the fact that she was from my hometown, and I would never heard of her or women like her just was amazing to me. So the Dispatch printed the article in uh, March of 2006, which just happens to be when Arnold Schwarzenegger holds an annual fitness festival in Columbus every year. So... Arnold Schwarzenegger's people saw the article, called me and said they wanted to give Ethel a lifetime achievement award because they thought, you know, she was amazing just like I did. So by that time, Ethel was divorced. I'm sorry, she was a grandmother. She was retired and she really didn't like the limelight that much. So I I spoke to Ethel, Ethel's daughter Shelly, who was kind of being the um, you know, liaison between me and Ethel. And I could tell by Shelly's voice that she didn't think her mother would really be into, you know, having that much attention on her. And I later came to find out that Shelly was the one who was trying to get her mother's story kind of recognized so so that her mother's legacy wouldn't just, you know, kind of fade away. Um, But, you know, when I told Shelly about the offer from Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ethel turned it down, you know, graciously. She said, tell them I said thanks, but no thanks. And it just occurred to me that if someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is obviously, you know, an international movie star and a fitness icon sees the value in Ethel's story, then there must be, something more to this than just one newspaper article. And in my research uh, for the article about Ethel, I had come across this documentary, Lipstick and Dynamite, which is about women of Ethel's era, other women wrestlers. But the documentary, and I don't think this was an intentional omission, the documentary didn't mention Ethel or any Black women. It did mention Ethel's older sister, Babs Wingo, who was actually the first woman that Black woman that Billy Wolf recruited. But it was just sort of a passing mention, didn't even have her, her photo. So I just thought, this is an entire chapter of history. I'm African-American. I grew up in Columbus where this history was made and I've never heard about it. My early part of my career was in black newspapers. No one at the black newspapers I worked at ever mentioned these women. We had photo archives. I never saw photos of these women. It was like they had never existed. And I just felt like they need their own movie. So to my surprise, when I approached Ethel about it being interviewed for a documentary, she agreed. And I was, you know, and I came to find out there were dozens of women like her through, through my research. And I just thought their story. was really, you know, as the title says, really amazing that they, you know, that these women had blazed these trails and they had just sort of fallen into obscurity. I just thought it was just odd and felt like people needed to know about it.
0: You used a term, uh, you know, kind of like a hidden chapter. I keep using the term, the hidden history of African-American women in my notes, because it was just an amazing bit of happenstance. Um, I had just finished doing the research for a couple of episodes about Mildred Burke. And I think we both had some a similar source material in Jeff Lean's Queen of the Ring. And when I started reading about Babs Wingo and all the others, I was like, "How? how have I never heard of this? How have I never seen mention? How have I never seen photographs or clips or anything? It was very similar to when doing research for how Women's pro wrestling became legal in New York and found out it was two women of color, Ethel Whitehead and Sylvia Casadilla, who fought that in court and got it legalized, only for Vince McMahon Sr. to swoop in and give that spot to, of course, the fabulous Mula. But it seems like there is this amazing rich history of African-American women in professional wrestling that we kind of have to do some digging to find, you know, and once you got into the archives and kind of did your research, like how surprised were you at the level of stardom that these women reached?
1: Yeah, I was I was extremely surprised. And I was actually I found out about Jeff Lean through a friend of mine, Will Haygood. Both Will and I started out at the same African-American newspaper, although Will is a little older than me. Um, so we started out at the Call Post. So Will is now a reporter with the Washington Post. He's written several very acclaimed biographies like um, of Sugar Ray Robinson, Sweet Thunder. He's written biographies of Pammy Davis Jr. and Thurgood Marshall. And he actually wrote the article that the movie The Butler with Oprah Winfrey And uh, Forrest Whitaker, he wrote the newspaper article that that movie was based on. So Will periodically comes back to Columbus and, you know, we're friends. So Will, so when I told Will about these, you know, women wrestlers, he was like, oh, if you're really serious about researching women's wrestling, you should talk to my colleague at the Washington Post, Jeff Lean. He just wrote a book about Mildred Burke, the first women's champion. So when I talked to Jeff, Jeff was like, if you're really, really serious about researching wrestling, you need to go to the University of Notre Dame's archive. That's where I did most of the research for my book. So that the university, so there was a promoter named Jack Pfeffer, who donated all of his material to the university of Notre Dame when he passed away. I mean, it's just, I call him an organized pack rat because he saved everything. I mean, letters back and forth from women to different promoters, press clippings. Uh, I mean, it's just a treasure tro- And there were just dozens of photos of Ethel, her, her older sister Babs and her younger sister, Marva Scott, who also became a wrestler. And I just, Kathleen Wembley, who was another one of the, another one of the first black women from Columbus that Billy chose uh, to be in his uh, wrestling organization organization. organization. So I was just amazed. It was like, you know, it was like going into like, ancient Egypt or something and see, you know, and actually getting to see pictures of the Pharaohs or, or you know, Nefertiti or Cleopatra or something. I mean, it was like, why did I never hear about this growing up? I mean, black history as it's taught in schools is, is very minimal. We hear about slavery, Martin Luther King, and that's pretty much the end of it. You know, the fact that we never learned about this local black history, I just thought was really um, just, you know, just amazing in a bad way that we, that, you know, the, that those of us who grew up in Columbus were never taught about this.
0: Yeah. And that's something I really did want to, that's something I wanted to touch on is the, whether it's accidental or intentional incidental, the erasure of non WWE profitable wrestling, I guess would be the way to put it because women's pro wrestling as a whole very much collapsed after the really horrific drama between Billy Wolf and Mildred Burke, the NWA decided it was too much of a hassle to even deal with Lutez, the champ at the time had one, didn't want women's matches on his card and women's wrestling kind of went into a bit of a, a dark age, you know, mm-hmm. it would pretty much be relegated to weird quasi pornographic, you know, apartment uh, wrestling, wrestling yeah. stuff like that. It took a long time for it to really come back, let alone become respectable and a truly amazing athletic spectacle like it is again today. But I feel like the WWE, because they controlled the narrative by buying everything and anything they could get their hands hands-on, they made their own history where you think of women's wrestling before, you know, the Attitude Era, which really was not a high benchmark for women's wrestling even then, it's only the Fabulous Moolah. And then a little bit later, we bring Mae Young back into the picture, but the erasure and like same thing with the uh, the New York uh, Athletic Commission case to get women's wrestling legalized in New York. When you erase women's wrestling, it's almost like a double erasure for women of color.
1: Yeah. And I don't I don't think all the blame goes on the WWE. There there's several different factors for the the reason why these African American women have not been <laughs> recognized you know, before now. Part of it is, I have to be quite honest, and anyone who watches the documentary will discover this. The women themselves, like Ethel, and I also interviewed Ramona Isbell, another African-American wrestler from that era. The women themselves, when they were outside the ring, often didn't want to talk about what they did for a living because they looked at it as either, you know, not quote unquote legit or not ladylike, or they just felt like, In Ethel's case, she felt like her children would worry about her if they knew she was a wrestler. So she, I always compare her to, I always compare Ethel to Diana Prince, Wonder Woman. Like, you know, know, Diana Prince has this dual identity where she's Diana Prince, this woman in everyday life who no one, you know, and she's just a mousy woman wearing glasses or whatever. And then she she turns into Wonder Woman and does these amazing things, but she's totally anonymous. And that's sort of how Ethel wanted her life to be. She, she kept her wrestling career separate, and after she retired, she didn't talk about it. I recently spoke to Valerie Hawes, daughter of another Black female wrestler, Lula Mae Provo from the same era, and she said her mother was the exact same way as Ethel. She did not want to talk about her career. It was almost like she was ashamed of it. So so part of it is the reluctance of the women themselves. They didn't go about bragging, go around bragging about it, like the fabulous Mulah. you know, they, they, it was sort of like, they, they just, they really kept it hidden. And if you look at history as a whole, it's not just, it's not just wrestling or sports, I mean, the history of people of color you, has been kind of swept under the rug. That's why we have Black History Month. But women especially, you know, somewhat is when a story ran about the documentary in the Washington Post, the headline was hidden figures of wrestling, like the movie Hidden Figures about the black women who were instrumental in, in NASA. So that that story wasn't widely known before that movie was released. So it's partly, like you said, the WWE just focusing on the history of that organization and Nothing that came before it, um, the women themselves, and then just history in general, kind of giving women and and people of color kind of short short shrift, unfortunately. Absolutely,
0: and that's you know, and that's something I kind of we see in other sports, baseball, boxing, where you have the resurgence of athletes of color who can be celebrated. But I feel like one of the things that helps with that is there is this unbroken line of that sport from their day to our day. So there's a lot more direct influence generation to generation to generation. Um, I talked to a lot of my African American friends in wrestling, and they, they literally had no idea who any of these people were. And Hopefully I bullied them into also renting or buying this uh, documentary <laughs> uh, because <laughs> like, even within the culture, it seems like, you, you know, the names of the boxers, you know, the name of the basketball players, because those were big civil rights moments in sports. So if anybody ever wants to say they want politics out of sports, well, guess what? The history of sports is the history of politics. Yes. And just because we had that kind of collapse of women's wrestling as a sports spectacle, however we want to describe it, I feel like that created created a almost impassable abyss to uh to bring that information to today. And that's why I'm so grateful that you did this work. And you're educating not just goofball uh wrestling fans like myself, but you know, people within the African American community who did not know that they have heroes, they didn't know were heroes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um you mentioned um there was something you said that I wanted to go back to. Um, well why don't you ask me it'll it'll come to me if you if you want to if you you want to ask me something else? There was, there sure. Well how, about this? I to go back to.
0: well, how about this? Let's just take a moment and I want to show people this trailer. For people watching the video version, I want you to get your eyeballs on this because it is so amazing to see the source material, I actually hear these women telling their stories. So let's take a moment and let's watch this trailer. We were the first black girls up there, you know, and had no black girls at all.
1: So that was kind of a tough road to hoe. They had a hard, hard time. It, it, it was so competitive that, that I think that back then that it may have been very difficult for a black lady. When they got on the mat, they had to perform and hit harder and they were rougher on each other than we were. Because I proved
0: myself as number one in the country. <laughs> number one. Uh, just watch that and think I need to watch this right now call in sick to work tell your wife that her birthday can wait rent this now. I know I rented it the first chance I got. I loved it. How's the reception been so far?
1: Yeah, it's been really, really incredible. Um, people that I've you know, you know, never met from around the country, even internationally. I, I had a librarian in Istanbul, Turkey, who asked me for a, a, a copy to include in their library. It's So all around the world, people are amazed by the story of these women and the fact that really before the The civil rights movement really picked up momentum and definitely way before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was like, you know, officially signed into law. These women were really breaking barriers and breaking boundaries. I remember what it was that I wanted that I wanted to go back to that you touched upon. You talked about how sports and politics are intertwined. Well, a lot of the women like Ethel ended up being sort of reluctant civil rights pioneers. Ethel tells a story in the documentary of how, when she would wrestle in the South, and Ramona Isbell talks about this as well, how, you know, they were, they were subject to the same Jim Crow laws that every other African American was. You know, it didn't matter that they were Celebrities and they were coming there for a big wrestling match. They had to go in the back door of restaurant restaurants. They couldn't stay in a in a hotel in the nice part of town. They had to stay in a boarding house, you know, in the quote unquote colored part of town. They had to do the the you know as they called it Chitlin Circuit that all the other black athletes and entertainers did. And Ethel said that she got physically tired of having to do two matches when she'd be in a in a city two matches in one day, one for the white audience and a second one for the black audience. So she actually Ethel actually told a promoter, she was like, look, if you're not gonna let the black blacks and whites into the same show, I'm leaving because you know you're using the excuse that you don't have separate you know, the separate colored restroom for the black people. But she was like, here I am, a black woman. I'm the main attraction and you're not letting my black fans in. So she said she forfeited her money and left and drove back to Columbus. So she had no intention of being a civil rights pioneer or, you know, having a Rosa Parks moment. It was just sheer physical exhaustion and frustration. So a lot of these women faced situations like that and took stands. And, you know, they had you know, the fact that and Ethel said that's part of the reason why audiences started being integrated at, at wrestling matches is because the black women would refuse to wrestle if they didn't let you know fans of all different colors in, and they you know they've never been recognized for that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like you pointed out, they didn't have that big dramatic Rosa Parks moment, but that doesn't make their emotional exhaustion based stand any less important or noteworthy. Because I can't even imagine the emotional exhaustion of dealing with that, let alone. People are becoming a little more aware of it in general culture. But another thing, along with uh, African American women in wrestling, that American culture tried to erase is just how dangerous. We're not talking unpleasant or you know mildly uh, inconvenient. It was dangerous for African Americans and especially African American women to yeah. travel as an attraction in the South. And you know I, I remember reading um, stories about Mildred Burke's son and Billy Wolf's son driving them town to town with a gun in the glove box because they could literally be ran off the road at any time by really awful people, either out of racist uh, you know, psychosis or trying to rob them or both.
1: Yeah, it's really incredible that these that there wasn't a, more of a serious incident that happened other than, you know, when Billy Wolf and Mildred Burke's son was driving the black woman around that they'd be stopped by police and questioned, why are you race mixing? Get out of town. I don't ever want to see you again. It's really incredible that they weren't, you know, dragged into some like backwoods and and you know, murdered, never to be seen again. And then Ethel told a story about, I think she said it was Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where the, uh, a group called the White Citizens Council, which she said was a form of the Ku Klux Klan, threatened to hang her and another black woman wrestler. So like you said, it wasn't just this, oh, it's a little inconvenient that I don't get to stay at the four star hotel. It, I mean, it was truly their their lives were at stake a lot of times.
0: And that's something... You know, we're only recently seeing in mainstream culture like we can thank HBO's Watchmen for introducing people to the, uh, the Tulsa riots. We can have Lovecraft Country for introducing the idea of sundown towns to contemporary white American audiences. And yeah. that's important to contextualize for women like this, because these were not, despite what you see in the ring, these are not real life action heroes. These are people trying to get to work, trying to live their lives, trying to live on the same pedestal that their white counterparts were. And it's important to never, I feel like it's almost a pun, whitewash that for the comfort of the viewing audience. I'm very glad that the documentary covered a lot of that for people who didn't know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean a lot of a lot of African Americans, like my grandparents told me about sundown towns. I mean even Ohio is considered the north, but my grandfather would tell me he used to be a truck driver, you know, he would he would drive through towns and there would be actual signs that said in word don't let the sun set on you here. So those women faced those same things and you know having to duck down, you know, in the in the back seat so that the the police wouldn't see, you know, a white man Billy Wolf and Mildred's son driving them around. And even in, you know, overseas, a lot of times they were treated better in other countries because they didn't have the same Jim Crow segregation that they had in the United States, but uh, Marva Scott's daughter, Kim Martin, in the documentary talks about her mother's experience in Japan when the wrestlers over there would would mock her and say, you know, inward, inward, pressy hair, press, you know, like make fun of her hair or whatever. Yeah. Even sometimes in other countries, like Ramona tells a story about she was doing a match in Sydney and she was, you know, before the match, she was killing time shopping at a mall and the the store clerk made it very clear that she didn't want Ramona touching any of the merchandise. So, yeah, I mean, the 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 indignities they experienced range from, you know, just, you know, microaggressions like a store clerk being rude to you and following you around to see if you're going to steal something to all the way to your life being threatened by hanging.
0: And and that's the thing that. The contrast of having to deal with that in your normal life, and then stepping into that ring when your music and the lights hit, and being a star, and feeling that rush, and feeling that crowd reaction, and then having to essentially be snuck out the back and go either out of town, no matter how tired you are, or to a um, you know a bad hotel you wouldn't want to stay in, no matter what. And you know, once again, it comes back to that emotional exhaustion that I feel kind of drove these women to not be celebrating their own careers. So I, it, it's a very much understandable, very much unfortunate. Something that was discussed in the documentary that I wanted to talk about is how they would have to work twice as hard to get half the recognition. Pro wrestling back then even under the best conditions, was a lot tougher to break into than it is today. Today, you can go to a pro wrestling gym, pay your $2,000 for your six months of training. You'll make it or you won't. Back then, they were still actively keeping people away from the business to protect it and once you got in even though matches were worked it was still a pre-arranged contest you still had to be pretty darn tough to hang in that ring and you know the stories of backroom actual grappling matches are legendary across the business from that era but what's your opinion on that like did you get any good stories that might not have made it into the documentary about how much harder it was for them to make it than some of the people they might have seen blow past them because of their whiteness
1: yeah, well, it's it's definitely, I mean, it's still true to this day that people of color and women have to work twice as hard just to get the same opportunities. But Ethel talked about the grueling training regimen of how, you know, it was, you know, a minimum three hours a day and it was, you know, old school physical training. It wasn't, you know, like how it is today in some sports, taking supplements and having, you know, a, a personal trainer perfectly design your diet. And I mean it was like, you know, getting six getting your six pack by somebody throwing a medicine ball in your stomach. And uh, Jeff Lean talked about the sex muscles and diamonds formula that Mildred Burke and Billy Wolf developed, you know, to find the you know quote unquote perfect female athlete. They had to have sex appeal. That was the sex part, obviously. Muscles, they had to be true athletes. So they had to know all the holds. It wasn't just, you know, going through the motions. And the diamonds part was like Hollywood glamour. Like you had to look like a um, Hollywood starlet outside of the ring. So Ethel Brown, you know, one of the white wrestlers from that era that I interviewed, she talked about how... You know, you weren't allowed to smoke cigarettes outside the ring. You weren't allowed to, you know, curse or bad mouth people or wear pants or slacks, as they called them back in that day. But definitely it was you had to work twice as hard. And that's what talked about how Mae Young, you know, she said she spent days uh, in the ring. She said bopping and knocking when she was like, you know, one of the the new girls. And Mae Young was was kind of like uh I don't want to use the word sick on her, but Mae Young was used to, to see if she could break Ethel down. Like, let me see if I can break you and if you have what it takes to be in the ring. So definitely, it was definitely the case that Billy Wolf didn't want just some average woman walking in off the street. He really wanted a, a top tier athlete. And that's why, as you mentioned, after Billy Wolf and Mildred Burke, after the, after they divorced, and especially after Billy Wolf passed away in 63, in I believe, the quality of female wrestler for a while kind of deteriorated because it wasn't the same level of training and selectiveness.
0: This was still the era
1: of champions like
0: Luthez, where you would be traveling town to town, working with local talent sometimes, And you would have to know how to handle yourself in the ring if it came down to it. You had to have that one hold you could catch anyone with if they tried to shoot on you. And the other thing you were talking about that I I like is discussing how they were presented, because it very much reminded me of the old studio days of Hollywood, where the image had to be manufactured and maintained no matter what, whether it was in the ring or at the grocery store. It was a very controlled look, but... I, I really, you know, I, I hate saying nice things about Billy Wolf, uh, the more you know about the guy. And that's a that's a real problematic thing me um, and you know, my, my partner were discussing during our recordings is Billy Wolf was the man who really brought women's wrestling out of the circus and put it in the arenas. He was also the first person to integrate, racially integrate women's pro wrestling. So he's somebody who was very progressive with what he was doing and whether it was the good in his heart or whether he just saw dollar signs and thought that was the way to make business work. He's responsible for a lot of progressive stuff, despite being a pretty awful human being. But with that way of promoting things, he didn't promote African-American women any different than he did Mildred Burke and the other, May Mae Young and the other women, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I see Billy Wolf as a complex figure even if you see like some of the hollywood moguls of today who have gotten taken out by the me too, me too movement i mean they were you know i hate to bring up the example of harvey weinstein but you know he harvey weinstein was someone who was he gave to democratic causes and was liberal on some issues but obviously he was a monster in his personal life billy wolf i don't know if he was quite to the level of a harvey weinstein but he was definitely a womanizer you know he was not faithful to mildred Burke at all you know he had several wives and he was known for his underhanded business Practices, but on the issue of race, he was definitely more forward thinking than most of the white men who had any level of power in that day. He, Billy Wolf is the one who thought of Jackie Robinson and how Jackie Robinson integrated Major League Baseball and thought if I do the same thing with women's wrestling, it can bring the same level of attention and excellence i can attract athletes of different races to my organization but yes there there was definitely and and to answer your question he definitely treated the black women the way he promoted them the same way as he treated mildred burke and the and the other women he uh promoted because other wrestlers i mean other or other promoters would often encourage like stereotypes like the you know the african savage stereotype but billy wolf was all about that hollywood glamour look so whether it was a black woman like ethel or if it was Mildred Burke, he had the same level of like uh, the same kind of type of glamour image. So it was sort of that way across the board, no matter what the woman's race was. So I don't know if you can look at that as progressive but yes at least he didn't promote a lot of stereotypes about the black women that he that he promoted
0: yeah i mean you you would think that if i just presented the information of a white midwestern man promoting african-american women wrestlers in the 1950s most people would picture oh god like what was it like a female kamala was it you know like headhunters what awful cringeworthy thing happened and it's pure quality once again billy wolf behind it but what matters is what happened in the ring and I, I think that's that's why this story is so important to be told so important to be heard and i'm glad it exists kind of one last thing to talk about before we uh, we call it a day is how do you think i don't know because when did you record all these interviews
1: so I started working on the documentary, I want to say it was 2006, like right after the, um, right after the, the dispatch article came out. So it was like on and off for like six or seven years. So the, that was one challenge is the, is the technology kept changing because when I started like DV tape was sort of like the standard and Avid was Avid and Final Cut were like the, um, you know, the editing systems and then Avid and, and Final Cut started being phased out and DV tape started being phased out. And so the change changing technology over all these years was 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 one of the challenges but yeah so it was over the the interviews were over the course of like six years beginning in 2006 and after that it was like editing and post-production And I have to give a big shout out to Ohio State and the Western Center for the Arts because they gave me a fellowship that enabled me to do all the post-production there and I actually worked with Paul Hill their their staff editor who I actually went to high school with
0: Nice. Yeah, because I asked about the time frame because it seems like the release of the documentary is very timely as we have seen women's wrestling reach a height it has never seen before. We actually had an all woman main event in Wrestlemania and we're also seeing a huge influx of African American representation in top level professional wrestling. You know, one one person I thought of when you were talking about how they had to work twice as hard is Naomi from WWE who was initially just given a backup dancer role for a comedy act and worked harder than anyone reinventing her gimmick, reinventing herself to get to where she is now. Similarly, on the male side with The New Day, who were floundering because, you know, uh, unfortunately, with a lot of televised wrestling in the past, African-American portrayals were either meant to antagonize the kind of like redneck white wrestling fan or was what a bunch of 60 year old white guys from the Northeast thought would draw in an African American crowd. So that's why you would see the new day originally being packaged as a, almost a gospel group. And they forced themselves into the gimmicks as opposed to forcing the gimmick into themselves. And You know, they just became themselves. So we're seeing this amazing influx of wrestlers like Naomi, Bianca Belair, Ember Moon, Sasha Banks, Kira Hogan, Big Swole, Nicole Savoy, Marty Bell, Patricia Dora who we uh, you know is how I found out about this documentary um, and we're seeing instead of them being packaged as stereotypes of however the corporate world wants to see them they're getting to be themselves they're getting to be their own representation they're showing who they are what their culture really is showing their own background and I think it's creating a great connection which makes pro wrestling more popular in different communities which of course is something I love hearing about I don't think there's anything more boring than when I look out at the crowd of a show and it's a thousand people that look like me (laughs) it's just that's 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 just how I I view it it's like diversity is awesome representation is awesome and I love that we're getting into a position where for the first time since the 50s we have african-american stars being presented with as much dignity as possible, who can hold their own physically and performance-wise against their male counterparts and their stars. They're huge. They're all over the place.
1: Yeah. And I I mean, it's just sheer happenstance that the documentary is coming out now, as you said, when a lot of African-American wrestlers and African-American females are starting to get more opportunities. And actually, the release on Amazon was really just sort of, uh, it was honestly due to COVID. Like I had people... You know every now and then would request oh please come to my city and have a screening and that you know you'd be surprised at how much interest there is from academia like i've i've actually spoken a couple of times at local colleges like ohio state and otterbein and there's there's just a real interest in the in the history of these women in in academia i'm not talking about like oh come to our middle school you know career day i'm talking about like you know international universities and so it's just it's just sheer happenstance i was i was actually going to like organize a tour of screenings around the world actually and because of COVID I was like well I'll I'll just go ahead and release it on Amazon
0: I wish I would have known about this documentary months ago I did a Zoom lecture for the the Tisch School of Art about the idea of internet fame influencing minority fandom in the uh, the wrestling world because we're starting to see as a wrestling fan you no longer just are dependent on WWE you can go find things on YouTube on various streaming services there is people don't know There are entire shows dedicated to African American performers, dedicated to gay, non binary. Uh, performers. There is so much diversity in wrestling now, so the audience is finally able to find the superheroes that they connect with, and is growing wrestling in a way that I personally find amazing.
1: Yeah, something that I, that was a realization that I discovered while I was making the documentary, so I finished like a a cut of it, you know, like like a version of it in 2017, and I realized when I finished this version of the documentary, I was like, you know what, I've never been to a wrestling match in person. Person. so I went to uh, WrestleCon in Orlando and one of the observations and this was this was probably an advantage of not being such a huge huge like obsessive wrestling fan because I had more detachment and I was kind of able to see the forest for the trees women's tournament in Orlando and I noticed that men were just running up after every match wanting to take selfies with the wrestlers you know I, I interviewed some of the, the guys some of the audience members after matches and I was like why would you want to come watch women's wrestling and they were like these women are like amazing. They're just so underrated. I just love the way they wrestle. And I don't know any other sport where women are the main attraction, but men are the predominant fans. Like I can't imagine a football stadium full of men cheering, cheering on women, playing football or women's women's golf, you know, just a whole bunch of men wanting to make an entire day out of watching women's golf. I mean, you, when you turn on the television set on a Sunday afternoon, how many women's sports other than tennis do you see? So I still think there's a lot of progress. I'm glad that women are starting to, Black women especially, are starting to get more opportunities in wrestling. But I still think society as a whole has a long way to go as far as equality. That's a fight that's all of our responsibility
0: to keep fighting. We find fight, you know, these, these women, we don't even need to go looking for them anymore. They are out there. All they need is a platform to shine, to become stars. So by all means... You know, check out uh, all women promotions respect women's wrestling is mine but there are plenty of, of others that are worth watching worth seeing these stars buy their shirts become fans it's a whole new cool world of wrestling so it's about time to wind things down unfortunately I could talk about this all day but you've got other things to do where can people find this movie and where can people find you on social media
1: yeah so they can go to amazon you know to to watch the movie and then if they want more details about the movie they can go to let let, the website ladywrestlermovie.com and i'm under my name chris Bourne, B-O-U-R-N-E-A, on twitter facebook and instagram and there's also a lady wrestler facebook page as well if you just look up lady wrestler movie on facebook it'll pop up uh
0: chris Bourne, I want to thank you so much for being here today and thank you for talking about this amazing documentary this incredible story this important story
1: any last words i just want to say thank you nick thank you for bringing awareness to these women's stories i'm just i'm just hopeful that more people around the world will find out about the women the women that i interviewed in the documentary and and other women and the contributions they made
0: and that's uh, that's kind of what we're all about here at pro wrestling history nerds listen learn and party because history is cool history is fun dive into the crazy stories and here we are Um, so thank you so much for uh nick Gossard of pro wrestling history nerds goodbye everybody we'll see you next week crazy territory stories double crosses and swerves pro wrestling history nerds